Hello and welcome to CQ Speaks. I'm Colin DeKesheter and joining me today to discuss the newest issue of the Carolina Quarterly is Editor-in-Chief Kylan Rice. Kylan, welcome back. Thank you. It's good to be back. So today we're going to look at the spring 2020 issue of the Carolina Quarterly, which is definitely a heavy hitter. Mm -hmm. Uh, I really enjoyed all the work. To begin with the poetry, we have four poets, Destiny Hemphill, Joseph Donahue, Nathaniel Mackey, and Jessica Q. Stark, each of whom bring a suite of poems to the issue, respectively. Is that fair to call them a suite? Yes, they're, definitely. They're all suites. Of... Yeah. The Destiny Hemphill and the Jessica Stark, they all seem of a piece. Yeah. And then Joseph Donahue continues his growing work, Terra Lucida, and Nathaniel Mackey includes two pieces from his living epic, Song of the Andumbulu, and two from his other growing series, Mew. So, some big names. Mm-hmm. Um, as editor-in-chief and just as a lover of poetry in general, what was it like to have Mackie and Donahue's poems come across your desk and to be able to publish a part of these growing epics in the Carolina Quarterly? No, it was great. Um, my dialogue with Mackie and Donahue, or Joe and Nate, um, <laughs> grows out of a uh, graduate course that I was able to take with Nate at Duke, and we were talking about um, Black Mountain Poetry, which, for listeners who don't know, is a an experimental college um, mid-century in North Carolina, which ran for a number of years and was really about pushing the boundaries of pedagogy, arts pedagogy specifically. Um, it was sort of an arts commune. Mm-hmm. But at any rate, I think the main feature for me to address with being able to feature or incorporate put side by side Joe and Nate is mm-hmm. the fact of their being close friends. Joe would sit in on this class and offer his insight mm-hmm. about luminaries such as Robert Duncan, Charles Olson, Denise Levertov. And they had this really wonderful sort of banter, witty repartee. And, you know, having the opportunity to publish uh, an issue that only features writer, mm-hmm. writing by North Carolinians or people working here at the very least, uh, Joe and Nate immediately popped into mind. Yeah. Um, not only as as people who I think deserve to be put into conversation as poets who are um, writing uh, living epics, that that in itself is a very specific move to make as a poet. It situates you in a in a very specific kind of tradition. Absolutely. Um, specifically, the Black Mountain tradition, mm-hmm. um, which definitely thinks of poetry as a process based art, and also a work of life writing, right. where the poem in itself isn't as valuable as either the series of poems that it takes part in, or frankly, the life of the poet yeah. that who writes it. And so I think that um, the fact of there being an important uh, poetic tradition in the form of Black Mountain in North Carolina, and then we have these two, uh, you know, frankly, luminaries writing today, emerging out of that tradition, and I had the privilege to learn from them both about that very tradition. Mm-hmm. I thought, what better opportunity than to use this um, this issue to kind of revisit, you know, implicitly the tradition of the living epic, or the poem is life writing that Black Mountain serves as the genesis of. Yeah, interesting. You're making me think about the connections between regionality or or rootedness or or earthiness to what we're calling the living epic, um, which is obviously a uh, a big part of this issue. You mentioned Charles Olson, who's sort of considered probably the leader of the Black Mountain School in Asheville, and he might be best known for his Maximus poems set in Gloucester, which I think was a growing series of poems. Right, yeah, his Maximus poems definitely grew. Um, I actually have uh, a an edition of the first sort of installment in the Maximus poems, mm-hmm. and it's this thin little thing. And then the book that's most common now is this 
fat tome <laughs> that collects the Maximus poems that sort of unfolded afterwards yeah. in a Whitmanian fashion. Also, poems about Regent, too. I mean, right. the, the, his Maximus poems are, as you said, set in Gloucester, Massachusetts. And right. Very interested in doing a deep dive into just a, a small a small region, which rhymes kind of conceptually with uh, some of the themes that Caleb Johnson gets at in, in his novel excerpt that we include in the in the collection. Absolutely. Or in the issue, I should say. I'm, uh, I'm glad you mentioned the friendship of Joseph Donahue and Nathaniel Mackey, only because I noted the absence of the feature you brought uh, right. to Caroline Quarterly, right. The Friend, but it's nice to know that it's It'll there. It'll come back. It'll come back. Well, it's there. It's there right, uh, right. a little bit more uh, <laughs> right. implicitly, and, right. that, and that's kind of fantastic, actually. So you haven't said explicitly that it's a uh, North Carolina-based issue, and it's not advertised as that, but is, is that what it is? Yeah, it is. Um, normally, we would only be printing two print issues in a volume cycle, but this volume will have three print issues, and one of them is this special issue, uh, which emerges actually out of a grant that we received from Arts Everywhere, an organization connected with UNC, kind of a, an arts initiative. And uh, the fact that we published a special issue was related to the fact that we applied for a grant from an arts organization that has a vested interest in promoting art at UNC and, by extension, in the state of North Carolina. And so we pitched our proposal which would be to feature writers from the Mid-Atlantic region. But over the course of myself and my administrative staff going about kind of dreaming it up, we decided that it would be most exciting to not kind of cast our net as wide as the Mid-Atlantic, but to focus more particularly on, on North Carolina. And I'm so glad we did. I mean, oh, yeah. the, uh, the, the work we have here, which was inten intentionally uh, targeted, and we wanted to have kind of a very focused sort of reading experience. So not necessarily to represent North Carolina as it, you know, exists in all of its, in terms of the writing landscape and all of its nuances and particularities, but to look at North Carolina perhaps a bit more impressionistically. Yeah. Well, it was very illuminating and energizing to be exposed to truly exceptional writers that are kind of in our own backyard, as it were. Um, with that said, it's probably a good time to look at some of the content itself. Is there a poem or a poet you'd like to look at or draw our attention to? Yeah, let's talk about Jessica Stark, who's got, a, as you mentioned, a, a really lovely and harrowing suite of um, poems. I'm not sure if they are currently part of a collection or a series. I know Jess recently published a book with Birds LLC, a um, independent press in Raleigh, I believe, um, and her book is called Savage Pageant. And I know that was published in 2020. So these are these are poems either somewhat connected to that project or right right off the back of it, but they hold together really well. I think there's a there's an overriding conceit yeah. that links the poems together, um, which is important to maybe for for listeners to kind of be aware of before um, we dive into one of the poems. And that is punctuating this series of about 20 pages of work are recurring erasures of variations of the story of Little Red Riding Hood. Mm -hmm. And in poems that don't necessarily feature those erasures, there are kind of discussions of Little Red Riding Hood and questions of myth and uh, fairy tale and the ways that these affect how we remember. Mm -hmm. And the other thing to mention maybe about these poems, again, I, I haven't talked with Jess extensively about them, so I, I couldn't say for certain what else is informing this selection, but I know that she's 
very interested in interrogating questions of genealogy. Mm -hmm. uh, this is, a, as I read it, a deep dive into the poet's family. I mean, what we have inserted alongside of the poems are a number of drawings and archival images, mm -hmm. including one of her mother as a young woman, a young woman in Vietnam specifically. Um, and that brings up the kind of the other element here, insofar as my reading is or is not correct. I'd say that this is a meditation on um, not just genealogy, but having family from Vietnam right. and specifically a family story that in some ways is marked by the Vietnam War and kind of the various forms of diaspora or that, that kind of occur in the wake of that war. So with that in mind, there's a poem that I was particularly taken by called Madame News. Ao Yai, 1946. Such a fantastic poem. Let's, let's listen to Jessica Q. Stark read it now. Madame News Ao Yai, 1946. Fritran Litson. Before the fit trim and the clapping of hands, a face spent in violent repose. Still, the photograph of a captured figure with a blanket for a shield and a baby on a battlefield. This is not where we die and later she would deny an interview after the age of 52. The projected image is no match for time's continuous undoings. Crossroad cruelties etched under lash. A student of the Lycée Albert Sarreau, Madame Nu was fluent in protection, utility, and beauty's arsenal, but the civilizing mission had one message to burn the piano that held no secrets, to cast the face away like stone. In her prime, she spoke French at home and could not write in her native tongue, sharp thorns catching fabric aflame. There is a tradition of noble and heroic mothers here, after all, that Loy hid from the Chinese under his mother's skirts. Buffalo girls know how to tie a permanent knot around incidents, how to mine mythology's antidotes for the fate of carrying and burying. Madame knew was many things, including a dancer, once a soloist at the Hanoi National Theater. She dragged hems across the knife edge between death and retreat. It is here where we do part, still alive while inside the Viet Minh are steadying the flame, forgetting about the baby who, covered by her mother's jacket, is turning away from the tidy story, is taking heaps of cloth in laughter, undoing each perfect edge. There's so much to say about this. I'll say briefly that an aoyai is a kind of long garment or, or dress. Um, Madame Nu apparently wore a more form-fitting version of the aoyai, and so I think that's the, quote, fit trim that Jessica mentions at the beginning. So there's a loose kind of connection already to Little Red Riding Hood through garments. Um, the Little Red Riding Hood covers a girl in the fairy tale, and here in the Madame Nu poem we have a blanket uses a shield in the beginning, um, Lelawi hiding beneath his mother's skirts, and finally the the baby at the end, covered by its mother's jacket. Uh, all interesting connections. But but what are some lines that stick out to you? I think lines that stick out to me uh, that are really key to kind of grasping the the heart of the poem are well the closing lines about turning away from the tidy story 
undoing each perfect edge. Mm-hmm. There's something about Little Red Riding Hood that is a tidy story. Right, I mean, yeah. b- by definition, a fairy tale, which that phrase crops up later in the selection as a way of maybe, in the context of that particular poem, understanding what Jess is doing in this selection. But, you know, the fairy tale is a, is a, is a tidy story. And I think that one of the things that might be going on here is an untidying of Little Red Riding Hood, which I think necessarily and by implication involves an an untidying of the ways in which we use fairy tales or myth to structure our lives Mm -hmm. or to justify or to euphemize. I think euphemization is another thing going on here or to euphemize um, experiences that are otherwise difficult to articulate. I think we see throughout this collection a real powerful and troubling sense of uh, inherited trauma. Mm -hmm. And I think that Jess is exploring uh, what could be said to be the limits of mythology's quote-unquote antidote. Yeah, and relating the poem um, to the Little Red Riding Hood poems, I mean, there's some work that can be done in in connecting them all. For instance, the poem that opens Jessica Stark's suite ends with Look Now to Little Red Cap, Hmm. taking all of her known objects to bed, taking off her overcoat to reveal fine downy fur. Now, this isn't necessarily one of the Little Red Riding Hood poems, uh, but what happens is a kind of transmogrification of Little Red Riding Hood into the wolf. Um, and then in the next poem, Little Red Riding Hood, which is an erasure, opens with a girl who lived ages ago was made of red cloth. Um, so the unnamed girl, known only as Little Red Riding Hood, is transfigured into the literal materials of the mythology or fairy tale. So to perform an erasure of various versions of Little Red Riding Hood, which I think Jessica wants to make clear are edited and published by men, but to perform an erasure and in that process transform the embodied unnamed figure of Little Red Riding Hood into either the wolf or the Red Riding Hood itself, it's a very interesting and maybe pragmatic way of punching up the fairy tale. I think there are many readings to be done, but it maybe seems to be commenting on the limits of our narratives or the limits of one's destiny, maybe. So it's interesting when we get to Madame New and the child at the end of the poem who is, quote, taking heaps of cloth in laughter, undoing each perfect edge, is a version of Lelawi and a version of Little Red Riding Hood, but is found undoing the material and maybe undoing the self that has sort of hemmed her in as it were yeah i i I picked up on this as well um and my sense was that with erasure as a technique i think there comes this uh jumbling or kind of almost blender like kind of you know violence wrought upon these these fairy tale texts that results in a kind of hodgepodge body where demarcations between one body and another Mm -hmm. between the the hero of the story and the villain um, you know, between Little Red Riding Hood and the wolf uh, are collapsed. And we have a sense of the ways in which the body, which I think is an important concept throughout these poems, and specifically the body's blood, it's kind of everywhere. Right. Uh, it's, it's, in, it's inverted, it's, it's extroverted, it's turned inside out and right side up. And I think that we have a real sort of objection uh, of the body that we're dealing with here and at kind of taking it apart piece by piece and recombining it. And so I think that there's definitely an undoing of the self, as you mentioned earlier. Also, I would just add to that an undoing of of the body while exploring how that body is traversed by inherited traumas, traversed by perceptions of race, um, traversed by the experience of racism. Mm-hmm. And so I think that poem that you mentioned, the Little Red Riding Hood poem, 
You know what? It's definitely worth hearing the poem now that we're discussing it. Um, so why don't we give it a listen? Here is Jessica Q. Stark reading her poem, Little Red Riding Hood. Little Red Riding Hood, after Thomas Nelson and Sons. A girl who lived ages ago was made of red cloth, conversation, and an errand. Not far a wolf talked so politely he made her forget. Pain undressed quickly, trembling open, and in rushed all that had passed. The bloodthirsty slew and read life at last. Hmm. Um, so there's this, there's this sense that mirrors really the lines on the, the left-hand page that you mentioned, little red cap taking off her overcoat to reveal fine downy fur. There's this sense in which viciousness is coordinated here with vulnerability or tenderness, we yeah. might even say. <laughs> and uh, there's, there's a sense that the, the one who is most given to violence is also the one sort of most uh, susceptible to it or vulnerable to it. Or there's a way in which also there's this kind of taking back or reclaiming of the position of the one who can do violence um, from the one maybe who has done it in the past. Yeah. I think, of course, taking back or reclaiming is a is a big part of Jessica's suite and also the issue as a whole, actually. Um, and I want to give time to Caleb Johnson's piece, so maybe we can think of a way into that here. But I felt that Elizabeth Bishop's famous poem, One Art, um, was all over the issue. In Bishop's poem, there's an ironic kind of tension between her use of the words master and disaster and the practice of poetry itself. Um, so we see it in Donahue's sections titled Master of Disaster, and at one point I think Nathaniel Mackey's speaker says they're connoisseurs of disaster. But um, here in Jessica Stark's work, we have her kleptomania poems, and in one she says, quote, stealing is an art that's easy to master. Sort of reworking Bishop's opening line, the art of losing isn't hard to master. So that notion of reclaiming something lost or stolen is here, but was kind of a theme throughout. And really, it's a trope in literature altogether. But what can we say about sort of the connections between reclaiming or stealing and writing and, and myth, these kinds of things? As you point out smartly, that the suite within a suite of three poems called Kleptomania in Jess's selection suggests that she is thinking quite deeply about questions of theft at the same time as she's thinking about questions relating to the fairy tale mm -hmm. and myth. So there, I think there is a, a provocative connection to be drawn between... Um, well, certainly the idea of reclaiming or taking, subverting, undermining, um, reworking, um, recovering, excising mm -hmm. certain elements of story that circulate with us, right? And and I think that that is a good way to talk about Caleb Johnson's piece yeah. as well, um, which is uh, an excerpt, as I understand, from a novel. Uh, both the excerpt and the novel are called Mountains Reveal Themselves Slowly. And just in terms of um, the role that uh, that story plays in shaping our lives, I mean, I think one thing to kind of note about this um, this tale, I mean, it really does read like a tale, um, at least in this section, is that the main character, Homer, uh, who we kind of see grow up from a boy to uh, a middle-aged man mm -hmm. in the course of just 20 pages, is how poignantly affected his life is by inherited cultural information, right? So the fact of his ambitions, which take him various places around the world, have as their seed his reading of, I mean, let's see, 
volumes of Dante and Petrarch, Icelandic history, texts on the uh, Ray, um, mm-hmm. Romanic language, one of five surviving copies of Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, Austin novels, cuneiform tablets, records of, the, of witchcraft trials, on the origin of species, the Book of Mormon, the Birds of America. So that that of course was a, a quote from from Johnson's story, but he's he's talking about the ways in which this young character is shaped by his exposure to essentially the same sorts of cultural data or information right. that uh, Little Red Riding Hood represents. Right. Um, and I think that the melange or the mixture that that very potent and somewhat random library of American and texts or texts that have affected American culture one couldn't help but be kind of formed or shaped by by that. It ties back to this uh, great line we were actually talking about before we started recording from the Madame New poem, which is, Buffalo girls know how to tie a permanent knot around incidents, how to mine mythology's antidotes for the fate of carrying and burying. Obviously, uh, Jessica Stark's mining of mythology and history is, is different from Homer's because Jessica is working from a history that she's a part of, whereas Homer has a kind of voyeuristic intention to write an ethnography of the folk culture of the people in the towns he visits. But Homer is generally a kind of a morally ambiguous person, and I think that might be a part of his draw as a character. But I but I suppose what I want to ask is, what do you think of his ethics, or maybe more broadly, who he is as a, as a character? Yeah, so just as just a little bit of plot context, hopefully this doesn't give, give away too much in terms of uh, the arc of the story. I mean, you should read it yourself. It's fa- It's fabulous, and I can't wait for the the novel to yeah, come out that it's too. part of speaking of living epics this would be a true <laughs> epic of a novel um just as a little bit of context for your point is that homer you know he grows up he's exposed to culture essentially he proves to be incredibly intelligent ends up going to college at 13 and is employed as uh, in various forms as a librarian and a mm-hmm. scholar um for uh, as a young man kind of going forward and his life is marked by a sense of restlessness that takes him into the natural world after he kind of expends or exhausts what human culture has to offer. Mm-hmm. And um, and we eventually see him in the mountains of North Carolina where he uh, essentially rubs shoulders with, you know, the, the mountain men and women of that of that region and and it should be noted that this novel takes place at the turn of the 20th century so a lot of it takes place in the late 19th century and we end uh, at sort of the turn of the 20th and uh, at that time i can only assume that this was a pivotal moment for for that region of the world in terms of the logging and the the clear cutting that caleb johnson talks about and i think one of the interests of both johnson and Homer, the main character of the novel, is to kind of bear witness to not only the interlinked kind of relationship between people and specifically small groups of people, or what mm-hmm. we could call folk cultures, and that the relationship between the folk culture and, and the landscape and the way that they're deeply and environmentally entwined. And so on the one hand, I think one of the things that this selection meditates on and and one way of kind of answering your question about the ethicality of studying a culture from the outside, uh, one answer that this selection might give is that culture is a kind of constantly changing and loosely bound nexus. And not only that, the land is a constantly changing, often at at our own hands, Mm -hmm. um, phenomenon. So you have this kind of compounded 
fluidity or ephemerality at the level of a what we could call a, a folk culture of these mountain men and women. And, uh, and I think what Johnson would say or what Homer would say to your question is that, well, the fact of its ephemerality means that it that there that it deserves some kind of capture uh, before before it's gone before it it can't be remembered anymore so so the question of memory and who gets to do the remembering while still a, a valid certainly a valid question i think what we have in the figure of homer is somebody who's hyper educated who happens to be at the right time right place this shifting landscape shifting culture and um the question is well if this is all changing with such speed then even if Homer is not an ideal candidate to right. be the the witness or the the record keeper, uh, he takes it upon himself anyway, and maybe that reflects on his character. I mean, I don't think Homer is a particularly ethical character <laughs> in some ways, and uh, and so maybe his decision to be a cultural voyeur, so to speak, has its virtues and its vices yeah. at the same time. Yeah, at the end of the day, he's a kind of conservationist in many different ways. With that said, do you think that he's a character that is sort of of the moment, or is he kind of a bygone ideal mm. of Emersonian self-reliance? It's a great question. I know that just from the dialogue that I've had with Caleb about this piece, this is an, a novel about climate change, yeah. essentially. Okay. And what we see here is uh, Homer is a uh, is a is a naturalist in the kind of uh, Emersonian, Thoreauvian tradition that you've just brought up. And so I think on the one hand, this is definitely going to be a work of historical fiction because Homer is very kind of poignantly of his time. But at the same time, when I first started reading this this excerpt, I had no idea when it took place. You right, know, like yeah. It wasn't until he's that Caleb started putting in like markers or cues for me to know when the date is. that I mean, It could be anyone or any time. Mm-hmm except for the absence, conspicuous absence of like modern technology. Um, so in, in that sense, it's timeless. But that doesn't answer your question about which time does Homer belong to, uh, except for the fact that I think he, he is of his moment. He's of a, uh, an American sort of 19th century moment. But in terms of his relevance for today, I would say that it's not so much Homer that matters. It's, it's the questions of environmentalism, conservationism right. that are still a very much with us today, but which have their origins in some of the early signs of environmental devastation that somebody like Homer bears witness to at the turn of the 20th century. Do you know where this excerpt falls in the novel? It's the very beginning. It is the beginning. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. I won't I, give anything think, away either. But <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, really, really, really worth reading. It has sort of the pacing of Cormac McCarthy and right. sort of the ongoing suspense that I think someone like Flannery O'Connor deals in. Very, very exceptionally well written, compressed, living epic. Yeah, I mean, you're using words that I would that that I was using to describe it to myself as well. Words like compression mm-hmm. um, or pacing. I yeah. mean, because I think that that's the big takeaway for me is that I can't remember the last time I've read a novel that fits so much into the first twenty pages, yeah. and yet does it with like exquisite detail. I mean, while on the one hand, <laughs> Johnson will write. You know, Homer runs the St. Louis Library for a decade. <laughs> you know, this comes right after his child, his infant daughter, is born. Mm-hmm. But uh, the fact of there being a whole decade that goes by in just half a sentence is breathtaking. Yeah. But at the same time, that comes paired with details like um, he's visiting uh, the cabin of some of these mountain men and women, and Homer 
uh, decides he's sort of going to do a Thororovian project and kind of live among them uh, in a cabin. And the winter comes and, you know, he's obviously unprepared as, a, as somebody who's not from there. And he sort of retreats into the arms of the community who bring him in and feed him. And the line is, they feed him dried beans rehydrated in spring water and cooked to a silken texture. <laughs> and just the, the, the specificity. Yeah. The almost exaggerated specificity, rehydrated, cooked to a silken texture. Why do we need to know this? Comes um, alongside lines of incredible compression, like Homer ran the St. Louis Library for yeah. a decade. You know, and that kind of like juxtaposition is really striking. Yeah, um, it's interesting that in his um, sort of in his day to day life among society, as it were, with with his job and with his perhaps with his wife and with his children he sees these sort of mundane or everyday things like working at a library for 10 years in a flash, mm -hmm. whereas he sees the preparation of a quote-unquote folk meal right. uh, as sort of this slowed-down, yeah. uh, hyper-intense thing. Yeah, it's really, it's really interesting. Something about that that reminds me of War and Peace, actually. Just in the question of, of um, speed of the narrative and the pacing, I, I think that Caleb's doing this on purpose. Um, oh, yeah. uh, so on the one hand, it reads like a chronicle, like a, an old-fashioned sort of ecclesiastical history written sort of in the style of Bede, and then also kind of joined by moments of hyper-realism, as we've kind of talked about. But um, the question of speed is, I think, relevant given what I was talking about earlier about the pace of change that happens at the level of landscape and the level of culture and the kind of uh, the way in which Homer, when he writes a book entitled Our Mountain Citizens, A Regional Study of People and Place, that is really leveraged to use to lobby for a um, national park in the Smoky Mountains. He, Homer is sensitive to the ways in which things are changing environmentally around him so quickly that his book, as he says, is going to be, uh, at this rate, this is the quote, at this rate his study would become history before he can complete it. Mm -hmm. um, and the fact of like needing to kind of go at the same pace as the changes that are happening at, at a local regional level, but also at a, at a global sort of planetary level is I think something that informs the breathlessness of the pace of the novel mm -hmm. um, as it kind of unfolds so far. The fact that it's just event after event after event, detail after detail after detail, and the speed is kind of what I come away with. And in that moment where Homer realizes that his study is becoming obsolete at the same pace of the deforestation mm -hmm. of the Smoky Mountains um, and the way that that affects or impacts a folk culture is, I think, mirrored in, in the prose. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. Well, speaking of time and speed, <laughs> I think that might be a good place to wrap up. Good. Kylan, thanks as always for joining us. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Uh, listeners, go get your copy of the spring 2020 issue of the Carolina Quarterly. You will not be let down. We've got lots of copies left and uh, we're, we're currently and indefinitely running a pay what you can model on the oh, issue great. so so pay what you can <laughs> yeah great thank you mm -hmm. that'll do it for today's episode of cq speaks if you'd like to learn more visit us at the carolinaquarterly.com and follow us at facebook.com slash carolinaquarterly and on twitter at nc underscore quarterly also, please remember to rate and review this podcast wherever you're listening and to be on the lookout for upcoming issues of the Carolina Quarterly. Until next time, read well, write well, and thanks for listening. <laughs>